that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Daddy, we called you Daddy when we talked to each other in the street, pulling on our American faces, shaping our lives in Patterson slang. Inside our house, we spoke a southern Italian dialect mixed with English, and we called you Papa. But outside again, you became Daddy, and we spoke of you to our friends as my father. Imagine we were speaking of that Father Knows Best TV character in his dark business suit, carrying his briefcase into his house, retreating to his panel den, his big living room and dining room, his frilly aproned wife who greeted him at the door with a kiss. Such space and silence in that house. We lived in one big room, living room, dining room, kitchen, bedroom, all in one, dominated by the great oak dining table around which we sat, talking and laughing, listening to your stories, your political arguments with your friends. Papa, how you glowed in company light, happy when the other immigrants came to you for help with their taxes or legal papers. It was only outside that glowing circle that I denied you, denied your long hours as night watchman at Royal Machine Shop. One night, riding home from a date, my middle-class American boyfriend kissed me at the light. I looked up and met your eyes as you stood at the corner near Royal Machine. It was nearly midnight, January, cold and windy. You were waiting for the bus, the streetlight illuminating your face. I pretended I did not see you, let my boyfriend pull away, leaving you on the empty corner, waiting for the bus to take you home. You never mentioned it, never said that you knew how often I lied about what you did for a living, or that I was ashamed to have my boyfriend see you, find out about your second shift work, your broken English. Today, remembering that moment, still illuminated in my mind, by the street lamp's gray light. I think of my own son and the distance between us, greater than miles. Papa, soap worker, janitor, night watchman, immigrant Italian. I honor the years you spent in menial work slipping down the ladder as your body failed you, while your mind so quick and sharp longed to escape. Honor the times you got out of bed after sleeping only an hour take me to school or pick me up. The warm bakery rose you bought for me on the way home from the night shift, letters you wrote to the editors of local newspapers. Papa, silk worker, janitor, night watchman, immigrant Italian, better than a father knows best father, bland as white rice, with your wine press in the cellar and the newspapers you collected out of garbage piles to turn into money you bank for us with your mouse traps, with your cracks and calloused hands, your yellow teeth. Papa, dragging your dead leg through the factories of Patterson. I'm outside the house now, shouting your name. Well, Paisani, that poet that you just heard was written by 
a really impressive Italian-American that we get to spend some time with today. So I'm John Viola here with another episode of the Italian-American podcast, joined with my partners in crime, the notorious P.O.B. Patrick O'Boyle and the Bell of Bensonhurst, Miss Rosella Rago. And we are at the Poetry Center at Passaic County Community College here in Patterson, New Jersey. And we are sitting with the most delightful and enthralling Italian-American that you ever want to meet, Professor Maria Mazziotti-Gillen who founded this poetry center 43 years ago in 1980 here in Patterson, product of Patterson yourself. So, Professor, thank you for having us in this unbelievable building in this city with so much Italian-American history, and thank you for opening the episode with that incredible poem you wrote for your dad. Right, and it's a hard, it was a very hard poem to write because it was such a betrayal of him. Leaving him on that corner was freezing. I didn't want my blonde, blue-eyed American boyfriend to uh, to see him. Yeah. And my father was worth a million more than he ever would be. But I fell in love with his blonde, blue-eyed good looks and his white colonial house yeah. and all the Americanness of him. Yeah. I didn't realize Irish wasn't really American. <laughs> <laughs> American enough. Yeah, it was a, <laughs> step closer than we were. Right? Yeah, a lot, a lot closer than we were. And especially, you know, I married him in 1964. So in 1964, I was still very Italian. I had been nowhere. I had been publishing poetry since I was a little kid. But I really had not traveled anywhere. I had never been on a plane. Sure. I, I didn't understand that Irish was not really as American as I thought. I thought because they were blonde and blue-eyed, they were American, and they were not accepted. And his family came from... Ireland, maybe five generations before. Wow. So they were American, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I learned how to make meatloaf and <laughs> pot. Well, we never had that. Of course stuff. not, yeah. I remember my mom incorporating that as we moved into the suburbs. I had a similar experience, and I never, I don't think I've ever told anyone this story, actually. And it stayed with me now. This will be 24 years since my grandfather passed away. We moved from Brooklyn to an Irish town in New Jersey when I was a little kid called Chatham. We felt very alien, and I remember coming out of church that Sunday. I was a junior in high school, and I had a crush on this American girl. I think she was Scottish, had red hair, which to me was like, I loved her red hair. And I remember coming out of church. My grandfather would pick my grandmother up. He wouldn't actually go to Mass. So he was there, and I said, Grandpa, this girl asked me to go, I don't remember where, a fun fair or something. Can I go? And... He said, of course, don't worry, have fun, blah, 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 blah. And that was the last Sunday he was alive, and he died oh. the next week. And it bothers me still, you know. That the, and I, I wouldn't probably have remembered it any more specially than any other Sunday, but it stayed with me, that, that sense that I gave up the last day, you the last day I could have done it, yeah. yeah but we all did a lot of betrayal, and I think I write a lot about that, about the way you deny your background because you're embarrassed by it, because it isn't American enough, because you don't fit the kind of Dick and Jane stereotype. I met a guy, an Italian-American guy. Um, I heard he has some memory issues now, in his late 80s. And I wish to God, um, I wanted to have him on the show before COVID. And then COVID hit, and he's not a tech guy, right? He's my kind of guy who get on Zoom. And now that we're back in person, I want to go visit him, and I heard he has some memory issues. Let's see what happens. He told me, I felt like I was a priest in a confessional. 
he was honored by a very big, fancy Italian-American event. And we were sitting next to each other, and he was, let's say, in his late 70s, early 80s at the time. And his parents were from Italy, and he had changed his name in business. And he said, um, when I was, went into business in the early 50s, I had the chance to make a lot, a lot of money. But the people in the know told me, that's not going to happen with that name. So he changed his name, but it has haunted him his entire life that he had to forsake his father. He's like, I made the American dream, yeah. but at the cost of identifying as my father's son. That's the whole poem. That's the whole thing. Yeah. That's the whole poem. That's, uh, that's everything that this American experience signifies for us. And, you know, it's like the documentary uh, on PBS, right? The the, the the conclusion, the concluding chapter after the four episodes is basically like, we've achieved everything that we set out to, but at what cost? And it's a question that's going to be asked, I hope, for generations to come. Because if people are listening to shows like this and they're preserved there in the ether forever, and if there are Italian studies chairs and all these things, or Italian American studies chairs and all these things, I hope that these, I think these questions are going to be asked for a long time. We're we're building a nation, but that's the with great no part about it. Yeah, the great part about America is you be you. Yeah, I hope so. You know, like if but, you take the fact that, but does that really exist? You be you. Um, if we're talking about these experiences, too. sure. But I I don't I think now it is. What I'm trying to say is that I is there discrimination? Sure, for different people, different times. But I don't. And is higher institutions is still in academia? Absolutely. But we are bazillion. The whole world's a bazillion miles ahead today than it was before. Sure, it's always better, but. But still there. Sure, still there. But I think that there's a lot of positives that we don't see. The fact that um, right now we're sitting at a woman who's had a tremendous career, right? I mean, think I about think when, I, when your father and your mother came here. Did they expect this? No. no. Did they expect my brother to be a doctor? No. no. Did no, they expect no. my sister to be a nurse? No. Never. Did they expect me to be a poet and a professor? No. <laughs> no. I mean, that that's the whole American dream. And um, you did it. Right, and I think it's easy, much easier here than Italy. Oh, I mean, there's oh, no such thing as an Italian Italy dream. Is difficult. Italy, yeah. if you're not born into a certain social yeah. class, it, it is nearly impossible to move. move up that ladder. Or, or let's add that now, all these years later, a social class or a certain strata economically in the know, right? Connected. Or Mario well, Mario well, well, movie. Con- yeah. In Mario Meadows movie, Old Zapadota. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's in Neapolitan. It's written in the '70s, and the whole movie is about. A guy, a kid becomes a lawyer, and he meets a girl from a very well-to-do family, and the, the price of admission is he has to forsake his father. He doesn't want anyone to know who his parents are. And I think that that's, because we have a lot of listeners who want to understand Italy. Yeah. If you want to understand the class structure in Italy, even if you don't, it's going to be a hard movie to understand because it's not going to have, it's a Neapolitan language movie, which is even more complicated for certain people. Old Zapadora by Mario Merola. If you want to understand, because the one that Class structure, that's a movie to understand because your parents could never, if you guys had been born in the Trento, if you had been married there, if they had married Forget there, it. never ever would have been able to do what you've done. No. Or your, you know, or the rest of your siblings. And I think that's that's the positives about America. We yeah. don't celebrate you're enough. Right. No, you're right. I you totally know, we, we, America gave us the opportunity, and it's not a perfect country. Nothing's perfect, but it's America. It, it's it's the best we've done so far as, as a meritocracy. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's what, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us. I'm gonna wrap us up. Okay. Um, go finish your statement. And I, I just think that um, 
my grandmother, I say all the time, uh, my grandmother passed away before I graduated law school. My grandmother could never have imagined, my mother and I have said this, having two sons who were lawyers. Not that it's any better than anybody else, no, just right? The, the, but that we had the opportunity. The opportunity, yeah. Right. The opportunity to go to school and to succeed in life. I'll never, I'm just going to say this and I'll, I'll, I'll be done. I remember getting one time an invitation to one of the very fancy Italian galas that John and I go to like all the time. <laughs> That's all we ever do now. It was, a, it was $150 in, um, I know exactly how much it was. It was $150 in 1993. No, I say 1994. And I got the invitation in the mail. It was a big deal that they had invited me. So I looked at it, and $150 of them was like $350 today, right? So I just put it away. My grandma goes, are you going to go? I said, no. She goes, well, I go, that's too much money. She goes, if you think it's important, it's going to help you. Don't worry. I'll give you the money. Ah. Oh. But that's. Yeah. I like your grandmother. I never met her. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, that, and she wanted to see me get ahead. Yeah. That right. was that sacrifice. My grandma. And, and that's. And, but we were able to do it. That's, that's the great accomplishment. And I think a lot of our own people fall into this. We think of ethnicity today, particularly our Italian ethnicity, we almost subconsciously attach it to an economic status, right? And so like right. you become white when you're not poor anymore or when you don't live in they, the neighborhood. They don't believe it. My father-in-law wanted to know if my father was in the mafia. My poor father yeah. who worked in a factory yeah. wanted to mo- know whether he was in the mafia. I said, no, he's not in the mafia. What are you talking about? He goes, well, he's Italian, isn't he? So sad. And I go. (laughs) (laughs) You think about the work ethic that people like your dad, like you share in the poem. And, you know, these are people who wouldn't keep a dime if they found it on the ground. They would look for somebody who dropped it. And it's the exact opposite of someone who is criminal. Right, the exact opposite. My poor father. And he did so much for other people. He would try to help anybody. And I meet people still. I went to give a talk at a retirement community in Montague, and I read some poems, and somebody in the audience said, I knew your father. Wow. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. And he said, yes, he was part of the Chilantano Society on Butler Street in Patterson. And when we were kids, we were getting in trouble. We we lived on Butler Street, and we'd get in trouble. So your father went to... Mr. Saliti, who ran a band, and he said, would you give them lessons? Wow. So he said, if they bring a dollar a week, I'll give them lessons. And so he took like 25 or 30 kids off the streets, gave them lessons, and the woman said to me, and my husband and all those boys became bandmen, band leaders. Wow. Uh, They made their career out of that. And it was your father who did that. For them, and he said the other thing he did was he realized they were getting in trouble, so he figured they needed to be kept busy. So he said, "I'm going to have the men from the club teach them how to pay, play bocce, wow, and let them have tournaments of bocce, and this way they won't get in trouble because they'll be too busy." Yeah. And so the woman said, "To this day, I still thank your father for that because he kept those boys out of trouble and." They made their lives out of this. Yeah, you need that. I mean, that that's the, I mean, think about that model today. 
the boys and girls clubs and the YMCA's. It's a big part of how we look at just formation of people today, that idea that you are active and you have, I mean, extracurriculars exploded, right? And back right. then, nobody did any of that kind we of stuff. We didn't have that yeah. stuff. Yeah. What did your father think and your mother think when you became a college professor of poetry? Well, when, when I first said I wanted to be a poet, when I was writing for the time I was nine, but and I had things published and everything, but when I was 17, we were having dinner, and my cousin had come over, and he was an accountant. And I said, oh, I, what do you want to do when you grow And I said, I want to be a poet. And he said, that is the most impractical ambition I've ever heard. And there was dead silence besides his comment. There was dead silence. My mother saved for a year to buy me a portable pink typewriter wow. in a pink tape case so I could be the writer I said I wanted to be, even though she thought it was totally impractical ambition. I had to get a job. I had to support myself. But I, I knew what I wanted to do right from the beginning. I wanted to write, and that was it. And then I started saying I wanted to be a journalist because there was a salary involved. Yeah. And so, you know, I had to prove to my parents that this was something I could do. And then my father was actually very literary himself, and he was very proud of the whole idea. And in fact, once I was invited to read at the United Nations, and he thought it was going to be on Channel 4. I said, Dad, he waited all night till midnight. Usually he went to bed at Aww. 9. And I said, Dad, I was nev- they never put poetry on Channel 4. <laughs> Forget that. But he thought it was going to be on Channel 4. And I, he was much more involved in interest in writing and, and that kind of thing. My mother was interested in cooking, being a good housewife, clean. She would be horrible. I had all these books. Books, books are going to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> we say, talk about that a lot. But my father was very supportive of that. And my mother, too, gradually grew more supportive of it. As I got more successful at what I was doing, she got more aware. And a book was published of mine in 1988. It was translated in Italian. And I think that's the first time my mother really understood what, what I was writing about. Sure, of course. It was the first time it actually went, got through to her. And also I was on All Things Considered on National Public wow. Radio. Yeah. And she heard me. Wow. And I think when she heard it, then she understood better. I mean, she couldn't really read. She only went to third grade. Yeah. We interviewed Congressman Pascrell, and he talked a little bit about growing up here and how Glorious it was in the Italian community here. This is a city that's really taken a beating. Economically, it's taken a tremendous beating. What was the Italian community like here? It seems like it was a big community. It was a big community, and it was a happy community. What I remember about it is they knew how to have a good time. They all worked hard, but they knew how to relax. And they had these clubs all over Patterson. So they'd go to the club that had other people from their particular region who spoke the same dialect and then they would have spaghetti dinners and they would have fundraisers and they would give scholarships and they gave before social security they gave death benefits it was a way for them to band band together and have other people they could depend on because most of them left their families in italy yeah so like i never met my grandmother or grandfather they were still in italy they were still in italy and 
that was true for many of them. So I had a lot of aunts and uncles, but I didn't realize they weren't really my aunts and uncles. They were still in Italy. Yeah. So you were part of that generation where, you know, once they immigrated, they never went back to Italy. Well, they couldn't afford to go back. They had two cents. Right. They were working really hard. My mother made 25 cents an hour. And you ain't going anywhere if you're No, But the generation. Yeah, that generation that came after the war, they were able to. Well, they made more money. And the the government and the economy was exponentially better post-war. So you could. Well, they were able to work in factories and get more money and get like skilled work in a factory. So we're in your your headquarters here for the Poetry Center in this magnificent building that used to be a men's club right here in Patterson. And right. To, to me, it speaks volumes about what kind of city this was and the industry that was here. But the room that we're in is one where you guys have a collection of folk art and folk craft, uh, inclusive of your family's uh, – how would you call that in Italian? The, the gamata. The gamata, right? right? The gamata, the, what, yeah. What's English? Uh, uh, embroidery. Embroidery, thank you. Embroidery and, uh, and crochet and things like right. that. Right. And we were admiring them, and you were telling us you did some, and you're talking about your family coming over with uh, nightgowns that were square linen. And I think about my wife's aunt was telling me about her honeymoon, probably she's probably your age, about the same time. She was still in Italy. She left Abruzzo for the first time in her life. Right. Go to Naples by train. And uh, her husband was from the north of Italy, so he was taking her up there. To, that was their honeymoon. Right. And she said she got on the train, and no, she got off the train in Rome, I think. And she said, I saw all of these cars and people dressed and, you know, everything was so modern compared to the little town in Abruzzo. And she said, it dawned on me that her mutandi, her undergarments, were all handmade by her mother. Right. And they were these big linen, like, you know, right. sorry, like <laughs> mummy wrappings, basically, <laughs> that they're like these prehistoric underwears. But she was like, I, it hit me, this is in the 60s, whatever, that, you know, here I am wearing these these ancient underwears and I'm in this new city and I'd never been in, I'd never been in the modern world. I'd, I'd, right. I'd been living in a, in a world completely removed from time right. for all those years. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. It is amazing. And I think of my mother so carefully packing that big trunk and taking all the Rigamadi and all the Biancaria and all the other things she thought she needed. And she would try to put away... Every few weeks, she'd put by sheets and pillowcases and all this stuff to put away for us for our dowry. Wow, that was part of your dowry that you were you had all this handmade linen. That was a very important part of a woman's dowry. It was the 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 bed clothes and the linens and the nightgowns that she came with. The nightgown. I mean, it would make you look so ugly, even if you were skinny. Well, you know. Because <laughs> it was square. It was hardly Victoria's Secret. <laughs> it's a different, it's a totally different world, really. I mean, you think about how foreign people were getting here. No no matter when the time is. But then you you listen to a poem like yours, and you, you understand the idea of, it's not even, it, it, it's maybe subconscious denial, because... When you grow up as the children of immigrants or in the case like uh, mine where you, you leave your little ethnic enclaves and go to a totally foreign place and have this sort of internal immigration experience, like Roe always says, you translate back the world for your parents a lot. Like it, You do. You're living in different worlds. You have to read their mail. You have to you make have their to appointments. Help them, you, you, know. have, you are like the American liaison. Yes. Them. Well, you have to translate the world yeah. for them. Yeah. yeah and it, it, it's because they can't they can't deal with it. I remember once walking in downtown Patterson with my mother, and we were going to Quackenbushes, 
and I was speaking our dialect. He's going, shh, 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 shh. They hate us. They hate us. Shh, wow. shh. And we get in the store, and my mother was looking for support stockings, and she's looking for these stockings, and the clerk was so rude to her. And I said, don't you dare talk to my mother like that ever again. I'll call your manager right now. I want to complain about you. Wow. Because she was looking at her as a poor slob. Right. And I wasn't going to let anybody treat my mother like that. She was not a poor slob. She was poor, but she was definitely not a slob. Yep. She thought I was a slob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like you have always had a sense of, I don't want to say resistance, but, you know, strength and confidence in that approach to a different world. What got you into poetry? Because I, I don't know much about the – I mean, you have – 23 books. 23 books. And and, and anthologies that you've edited of Italian-American poetry, right? Right, and and multicultural, three multicultural anthologies I edited with my daughter from Viking Penguin, which is a major publisher, and then Italian-American writers of New Jersey. So there were a lot of Italian-American writers. When we started putting it together, we realized, wait a minute, this person came from here. This person came from here who sprang out of this city, and certainly out of New Jersey, but out of this particular city. What introduces you to poetry as the daughter of immigrants? Like it's, uh, you know, well, let's, let's put it this way. I know exactly what happened with me, is that when I went to school, you know, we, they let you go to school when you were four. So when I was four, I go to school, I can't speak English. I can only speak this kind of bastardized version of Italian when we first got here, now you have a Georgian assistant, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah, she's she's my health aide. But she speaks with you in Italian. She speaks to me in Italian. Because yeah. she spent time in Italy. Twelve years. Right. Her Italian's better than mine. But you wow. spoke, because my grandfather's side is from a few villages away from you. And when you used, you said to her, Quiero libro gato. <laughs> right. That big book. I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah. She book. was looking yeah. fat book, the big fat book. Yeah. The fat book. I figured, how else is she going to know? I understood. <laughs> and she then, did, she's and then she's looking on the side and go, no, on Gop. And I knew, no, on the next shelf up. Like, <laughs> I understood because that's our shared linguistic Yeah, Right, and tradition. I love the way it sounds. It's beautiful. It, have you ever written in, in No, no. But they, they translated, you know, they did these two books. They invited me two times in San Mauro. And they did these two books of translations, and they had this big ceremony. This is when they made me an honorary citizen. Wow. And they did these translations of my poems that had to do with my mother coming to the United States, but also about San Mauro. There's a whole bunch in here, and they translated them. And the same with this one where they invited me back, and they had these big... They had all the women prepare some of the delicacies that they made. And so there were different desserts that I recognized my mother used to make. Wow. And they had the kids in the school recite my poems. And then they sang and they played musical instruments. It was so lovely. It was really lovely. My family, my parents were both Italian-American and all my aunts and uncles, most of my aunts and uncles were. So we maintained a very sort of insular, but I have branches of my family where, you know, my grandparents' siblings married non-Italians, and so it's a very different trajectory. They right. moved to Oregon or this and that, and uh, 
sometimes you do feel like creatures in a zoo, you know? Right, right. And they think of you as, I mean, I think the Italians who are against immigrants have forgotten everything. Yeah. The way we were treated when we came here, uh, people spit at us. One time my father walked all the way to Passaic from Hawthorne, where he lived at the time, and which was really a little borough of Patterson. And he walked all the way to Passaic because he heard there was a job. And when he gets there, they spit at him and said, get out of here. We don't want your kind here. Wow. He, had to walk all, he w- walked there to save five cents for the train. Wow. And he had to walk all the way back thinking about how he had spit at him. I don't think people, I think there's a lot of Italian Americans who take out context of your own. Like people don't know their social experience. I don't think people are curious about, I mean, obviously our audience is, right? That's why they listen to us. But like there's a lot of people I encounter who have no curiosity about what their immigrant forebearers experienced. Went through. And yeah, no, who do they think built the subways? Who do they think built most of the buildings? Please. I don't think they care to think about it. I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it factors in, you know? No, and they think they're accepted, but they're not. Yeah. Because behind their back, people are saying, he's Italian. I believe that. And, man, and I'm, a, I'm a different generation than you, but I do but believe they still doing that's that. still there. And I've encountered it in my own life as I've lived in different parts of the country, particularly, where I remember living in Texas. I dated this girl from Texas, and we went to a family event she had. And <laughs> I met her, and they were, like, deep in central, I guess, central Texas, like, real, like, one stoplight, looked like a movie set at Western. They lived on a ranch. And we went in to eat, and one of her cousins I was meeting for the first time was asking me about coming from New York. And I said, well, you know, I miss my family. I miss my culture. He said, well, what's your culture? I said, oh, Italian. I said, you know, I haven't really encountered any, at this point, I hadn't, wasn't living in Dallas. I haven't really encountered any great Italian food, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, why don't you just have Mexican food? No, no, I, you know, all respect to Mexican food, but like, it's a totally different, totally different culinary package, culture, everything. And for, for him... I was exactly the same as a Mexican person. Nothing. There was nothing different. Nothing. Well, somebody just asked me uh, this morning if all Italians, Italian men, put grease in their hair. This morning. This morning. You gotta be kidding. I go. What? (laughs) Where did you get that idea? uh, When you're done, when your mother's done frying the cutlets, take a little. (laughs) Well, you know how the mafia pictures show these men who put a lot of gel in their hair. Sure. And she said to me, did your father do that? And I said, no. My father had this very kinky hair, and it was cut short, but it was definitely very kinky hair. The the perceptions that that last today, I mean, it's... Well, one of the things, all these mafia movies set the perception in American consciousness that Italians are crooks, not to be trusted. And I think that's a long simmering kind of feeling about Italians. Unfortunately, the Italians, the writers who wrote, like The Godfather, who wrote The Sopranos, were brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Were brilliant writers. And they created characters that are indelible. In The Sopranos, that horrible mother. Yeah. Uh, She was a character from Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, he did a very, really good job that David, what is his name? David Chase. Chase. You can't David argue Ch- that David Chase captured the mannerisms, the, 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 uh, the ceremony, all, all, he did. No, but nobody debates that. I think that I've said it's c- coming from North Jersey. He d- you can't deny that the, the that, that was that the, the North Jersey that Italian 100%, and in I, Caldwell, in, in those little neighborhoods. Sure, well, I mean, we, we would name Soprano it, but I think the difference is, I've said to people, 
to entice America, you had to have the mafia there because the killing and the excitement and all the sexual right. tones. But really, when you peel that back, it's kind of like the Godfather the story about a family. Yeah, I mean, the Godfather the story about a Sicilian family. Right, that's really what it is. And the Neapolitan family to su- survive. If there was yeah. no murder in The Sopranos, I say this to people all the time. If there, if you took out the murder and the and the mafia part, and you just made it about an Italian son trying to please his mother, yeah. who's it's never had it's never self. still never but happy. It, no, it's still the most accurate. Yeah, absolutely, it is. that's very it true. Is. It is. He didn't have to kill anybody. Yeah, true. Well, that's, that's very true. He didn't have to kill anybody, you but would. he was trying to sell. Yeah. yeah, and the same thing with if that play, if that if the Sopranos was a play with only Gandolfini and Nancy Marchand, if it was a two person show, it would have it, it would have been the biggest Tennessee Williams success. Yeah. That's true. Of all time. Yeah, you're right. That's true. You call <laughs> the Shakespeare it is a very strong. Yes. Family story, yeah, and and dysfunctional family in some way, but also very functional in another way. Did it's, you ever feel that anyone held it against you in academia that you were Italian or thought less of you? Of course, you, you had to prove. One thing I learned very quickly is you had to prove you're good enough, because their initial reaction to you is you're lower class, you're not Ivy League, and you're you're an Italian. So. That is immediately three points against you. Yeah, but Pat, the Italians do it to other Italians. My mother could tell you stories about NYU uh, when she was trying to finish her master's, and the northern Italian professor would make comments to her about how when Italy, quando l'Italia ha giunto le regioni bassi come la Sicilia, la Puglia. Sure, but I think it's important. Like, right. You know this and I know this, but I think we have – you know, maybe I have fantasy world because we all know I live in a fantasy world. Yeah, okay. And I've said that when we're all gone, that I hope that this podcast is going to be for future generations to understand our moment in time, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I think that there's a lot of kids out there because I teach in a college, right? I teach at Montclair State. I imagine it's Montclair State. And a lot of kids today don't have a concept of Italy. They don't have a concept of – now, some of the immigrant kids do, right? A lot of the immigrants' kids will – understand things much more than the American-born kids. But there's going to be an Italian-American kid, God willing, 150 years from now. And I want them to understand that they, they saw you, that the last name that you're carrying now, 150 years after we're all in Ugambusan, right? Right. In the cemetery, that you understand that, that, was, that there was an academic who was just as good as them but had to prove themselves yeah. for no other reason than that they had your last name. And there's right. kids today that don't understand that. And I want this to be a marker. If you're an Italian-American, even if you don't have to identify because you have a, a name that was changed or a name of another nationality as your last name, you have a moral obligation to identify with us because you're part of our tribe, and there's a lot of us they left out in the cold because our, our gesticulations or our accents or the schools we went to right. didn't meet their criteria, and they keep us still in that, that bullpen. And you have to, because when you're there, you, when you're in Harvard and you're in Yale and you're in Princeton, you represent us. Whether you want to be or not, you represent us. And you're the one, when they look at you, they see us. We, we have a v- great track record. And Pat talks all the time about a hedgeographical bent in our culture where we kind of like want to rose-colored lenses through the past. But the truth of the matter is, I, I think we, we – and I, I see – I mean, look, I was talking to my cousin about doing business in Italy the other day. 
and we were talking about you know the ups and downs of it and the stresses of it, and you know it, it's always difficult. And I think we inherit it from just the the social interactions even there too, and the way society functioned for so many millennia. But we have a great, I think, strength of functioning out of dysfunction. I really do. I think that's a it's a hallmark to who we are. I think it's actually a great staple of our success and sort of our superpower, if you will, is that out of dysfunction comes a very functional model for us in a lot of cases. I'm not saying everybody survives it the same, but I, I think at our best, our family unit survives a lot of dysfunction. But I think that's why, like how you met your husband and he was American and nice and everything made sense and was, and was calm. And you gravitate, yes, calm. and you gravitate yeah. towards that because I can I can appreciate that how you know you you kind of want to be part of this Americana that you right. think is is the mainstream. It's an yeah. erasure of yourself, and we think it's better than what we have. Right. Well, the interesting thing is when my daughter and I did those three anthologies for Viking England, we took all races and ethnicities, and. What we realized as we were doing it was that no matter which culture, whether it's black or Hispanic or Asian, they all go through the same thing of wanting to erase themselves, yeah. wanting to be white and moving toward being white. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure America thinks of them as white. Not if, would have, if the amount of times I've been insulted, and maybe I, because I look like a loader Italian, class Italian, I don't know. But the number of times I've been insulted about my Italianness is huge. If we were so white, we wouldn't be changing our names when we become news anchors. I know I, I have a friend who's one of the biggest, one of the most decorated Italian American music producers. Remember Malibu Ken, Italian Malibu Ken? You yes, 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 yes. Yeah, his real name, his real last name is Ben Incasso, yeah. and he goes right. by Michael Bryan. Yeah. You know, right, uh, because they all, and all the big singers, yeah. the famous singers oh. of my youth, Tony Bennett, <laughs> Connie they Francis. All, they Francis, all changed yeah. their names. And Dean Martin. At, yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, if we were so white, we wouldn't be afraid to do that. The Latin, Ameri- Latin Americans <laughs> don't don't change their names. Yeah, but they, they, they've been better at, at saying we're not changing our names and we're not. Yeah. And but, also but they have big numbers behind them. It, at a different time, right? It's a different, it's a different time. time. I mean, but do we consider Bradley Cooper Italian? Well, yeah, his mother's Italian. You know, like yourself, for example, being born with a different last name is very different than consciously changing it for your career. Sure, but right. what I'm trying to say is that how does self-identity express itself in a world where the camouflage is given to you at birth? Yeah, it's interesting. So if you were born like Mary Smith, you could have kept under the ocean. Your submarine could have kept down. You know what shocked me recently? Taylor Swift's family comes from the Chilangas. No. Right? Stop. Yes. I can't handle it. <laughs> I think Casa Landita. She's from one of Casa de Lucha. She's like a, from one like of a, those. Casa Milan. She's from Mom by She's from by Valde Lugano. One of those small well, Campania does produce the best music in Italy. Yeah. That's true. It is a, but it is I mean, who would have thought Taylor Swift? And yeah. I mean, does she consider herself Italian? Who knows? To Bradley Cooper's credit, he self-identifies. Sure. Well, I mean, your perfect example. I mean, having an Italian mother, I've always Irish thought. off the. I got. I got to. You know, Irish off the boat. I mean, I can handle. I mean, think of how Irish I really am. I yeah. am really Irish. Yeah. And people go to me like, 
Well, do you feel Irish or do you feel Italian? My I s- my daughter's half Irish and half Italian, and she feels Italian. Well, uh, uh, from what you said earlier was that when you married your husband and you thought that he was white and American, and you didn't realize that being a Jersey Irish, for, like a first gener- like a an Irish person from New Jersey, is you know not that not that not white. That white. And yeah. yesterday we were having a conversation. You were like, I think it's different when you have someone like Pat. Who, where it's a first generation Irish person and a and a and a second generation Italian from New Jersey, you know, it's yes. it's very specific. Yeah, I was thinking, we were, I was talking about marriage. We were talking about our our in laws and family and how our families have spread out and raising kids and stuff. And we were talking about the idea of marrying somebody different. It's not a you know. I also have a hard time when there are Italians who like look at somebody who's not 100% blood Italian and think, oh, this, you know, like you could be a drop of Italian. We, we've experienced that in places like Tontytown, Arkansas. Like it's, it's, it's what you self-identify as. But I think there's also something to be said about where we are in the sort of social evolution of the country, right? Like, like Pat, your parents met and married in Jersey City as Irish and Italian at a time when that was a very common thing, shared the Catholic, like it's different. It was the, the, the CYO. Yeah was the machine right. up into marriage. Right. right. Or like, so people went to see, and for people out there who don't know, CYO was a Catholic youth organization, which had its like last power. The, the power of that empire kind of ended with my generation. My mother was on a CYO parish bus trip to Seaside, and my father was on it. But my father's sister, I mean, they were all off the boat, and they came as my aunt was 16 when she came. My father was 17. I mean, my aunt was 17. She came a few years later. My aunt married Polish. My grandfather's sister married a guy, and he had on the Italian side, and he was like he had seven sisters or six sisters, so he was the only boy with six or seven sisters. So when Italian hears that, that guy's going to be, he's used to being like the god in the yeah, house. Yeah, like the pope. He's the right. pope. Yeah. And the Irish people would never get that. You know, in in the Madonna of 115th Street, Orsi talks about this. Orsi talks about how the firstborn Italian son is like the ruler. The mother propping up the firstborn son, yeah. and my grandmother, I, my grandfather's siblings, I didn't really know because they all died very young in the sixties. My grandmother's siblings were younger and lived a little longer, so I knew I knew them better. And my grandmother's oldest brother was the king. Yeah. He was the king, and they deferred to him, and he was like the leader. I mean, my grandmother had to call him at Christmas. Sure, you know there is a certain there is a different brain. The Irish would never have the mentality of I got to call him first because he's my older brother. I like that you can bring to the table a comparison, right? A binary comparison between the Irish and the Italian because it's it's the same thing Maria's doing with the anthologies, right? When you take us out of an isolated context and you study us with other groups who've gone through similar things, it does give you measuring points and benchmarks to go against. And like, you know, talk about the first son or just, just even the the model of kind of fawning. Like my my dad's parents have passed away long time now, but my mom's parents, thank God, are still with us, and they were at the house the other day for the baby's birthday, and my dad arrived, right? So my dad's the the, the son-in-law who does everything with them, and blah, 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 and my grandmother treats him like her son, and like her eldest son at that, so he comes into my house, and the baby's birthday was farm animals. My kid loves farm animals, my daughter, so we had the petting zoo, and my wife got barbecue and stuff, and my wife's really good at these party <laughs> planning themes, and so we had cornbread, and my dad said, oh, I'm going to try some cornbread. And my grandma said, no, no, Vinny, you can't eat it like that. Hold on. So in the middle of a party with all these people, it's a, it's a torrential rain, right? 
got farm animals in my yard eating my grass. Everything's like chaotic. My grandmother goes and takes out a pan and butters the pan and toasts the, the hand toasts the cornbread for my dad. Well, everybody thinks going on around her. And she's like, no, you just wait. You can't eat it like this, Vinny. Like, you, you know, God forbid just raw cornbread should touch your tongue. And she goes and toasts it nice and she puts it out for him. And I thought to myself, I'm witnessing a bellwether of a whole psychology and sociology that's just not going to be here after that generation. My mom will do that stuff. I wonder if my wife or Ro, you and your generation will well, be Well, I same. do it. Yeah, maybe, because maybe I it'll survive. To, it dies um, with us. I don't it, know. Maybe it survives. It no, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect, like, if I had a daughter for her to do that stuff. I, I You know, I think we internalize certain things that we see. Uh, you know, for me, at first, I, when I was growing up, I absorbed so much of this stuff. But to take it with me into my adulthood was, was something I had to actively think about. And, and and say no, I'm gonna be that kind of part, but because society says we don't have to yeah. anymore, that's why women don't do these things because the society's up your culo telling you that you don't have to do that for men and you shouldn't have to do that and you right. should be an independent and and they can they're not babies and they could do, but sometimes it's nice to be the kind of the kind of woman that cares about people like that. Your reaction, the reason I bring it up is that I think you you're wired to. Public repute. You have to be held like in a glass box yeah. until we find the right husband, and then we're gonna wait. Yeah, but you're you're like in a. Um, your behavior is a reflection. Yeah, correct. Of your, the of your you know, you remind me of the first time I met Loris and Anthony. I was an interviewee on the show when they were running it. It was like, I think like the ninth or tenth episode. They came to NIF headquarters, and I did the interview. They set it up, and it happened that John Rosa, Doctor John Rosa, one of our board members, who's also been a guest on the show for his incredible work, later on. He was in headquarters with me, so we did the interview together, and we were just talking about this kind of stuff, and he said, you know, growing up in Hackensack, New Jersey, in a Sicilian immigrant family in the 80s, and he said what he saw around him in terms of you know, drugs and this and that, he always felt that no matter what, he could put his toe on the line to bad stuff, but he could never put his toe over because you shamed your extended family, right? You didn't just shame yourself if you failed. Right. You shamed everybody. And I I maybe I I know I feel that way about behavior and I I almost even though it sounds a little some people might qualify that as like repressive. I hope I can pass that sense on to my kids. You know, as Italian Americans, we were raised to believe that we are a family. We are a unit, we are a community. You do th- you do things in service to your family. Yeah. And the things that you do and the figura that you make isn't just about you. Today, we're, we're, we're self-centered. We're, it's, a, it's about us. Yeah. We are the center of the universe. Right. We're famous on social media. We have followers and fans and yeah. whatever. And people forget that we, we come from a family. Yeah, I, I think that this platform, this podcast, and these kind of conversations, it's our own sort of – I like that we can put – not just like the an intellectual conversation into the ether for people, but also an alternative use of these social medias. Because, you know, much like your work in poetry and, and particularly in compiling these kinds of voices from, from different writers, you know, if you don't put out into the world these conversations through they media, get lost. They get lost. And that's what and it's and, and sometimes it's like, you know, I'm sure your poems it's as much catharsis as anything else. You're reflecting on your life or your opinions or your views or your experiences. 
So when we have conversations like this, maybe, just maybe, there's somebody out there in the audience who never thought about this, never questioned any right. of these, and, 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 it, and it gives them opportunity to pause and cause to explore. Okay, I, gotta, and, I, and I just want to get this one thing in. When the professor read a poem about her father, how many kids today can really understand that the idea of an embarrassment, and, and a really multicultural, I mean, we've come so far, right? I don't know. Is a kid today embarrassed that they thought their parents spoke in English? I don't think uh, you know. What? I don't she, know. It, hearing that, it really brought me back to a place that I haven't been in a long time because, you know, my parents are both first generation. My parents are both immigrants. My father came when he was 14. My mother came when she was 19. And both my parents have accents today. I don't think anybody can argue that. But, you know, imagine in the early 90s. They have, they have movie star accents. They have movie star accents, but, you know, they were still accents. And I remember maybe not so much when we lived in Brooklyn because there were so many other Italian-Americans and people with accents. But once we moved to Montville, New Jersey, where everybody, you know, <laughs> if they had a vowel at the end of their name, that was really that was the most Italian thing about them. Or they were upper middle class Jews. I, I remember my first day of eighth grade there and my mother dropping me off and, you know, feeling for the first time, oh, wow, yeah. you know, and, and being uh, picked up at school. You know, in Brooklyn, my, my elementary school was a melting pot. Yeah. There were Indian kids right, and Asian right. kids, and everybody was ethnic. And to be here where, you know, the, this Mercedes rolls up and picks up uh, Susie Rosenberg and realizing that we were not like that. Yeah. I, 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 I remember exactly how you felt. Yeah, that sense of being separate, not not right. And trying like, to hide it. This right. is where I see the strength of this podcast. We're defining who we are. They're not. Yeah. We're self we're right. self definitive. Taking along I mean, look uh, let me I'm gonna tell you why I'm saying that. So like I said, I get triggered, a lot of memories come back to me when, when we're around the table like this. And I think about so we talk about my grandmother with the, the where's the either a botanicom or where's the usually where's the father. Um I think to myself that I went to school, Catholic school, and I've said this a million times, my grandmother polished my shoes, right? And when I said to her, you don't need to polish my shoes every morning, she'd said to me, when you walk out that door, you don't represent you, you represent me. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and I think to myself, when my grandmother couldn't, my grandmother had a very bad pregnancy with my mother, and she couldn't have kids really after my mother. So my mother was the only child. And when my mother went to Catholic school in Jersey City, and at that time everybody came home for lunch, and my mother would come home for lunch, my grandmother would have her change out of her uniform, and my grandmother would press the uniform. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. So everybody would comment how my mother would go back to school with a press uniform. So I think that the reason I say about self-definitive, if you go to those people in the White House, is the, the Medigan people, right? Right. They'll see the Italian polishing the, the shoe as a subservient, you know, this repressed woman. Or, you know, why is, she, why is she pressing the Catholic school uniform again for the second time in one day? But they took such ownership yeah. in... That was their representative. I think it's also and, that we had so much to prove. Yeah. Right. That it's like if we had to be considered second class in this country, we were going to be second class and clean and pristine. Yeah. But and I don't think that was any different from Italy because we went from an oppression. We didn't, we didn't, we weren't not, we went from a class oppression in Italy, which right. is horrific. Right. People don't understand. But I think that we went from a class-based, you're not good enough. To an ethnic base. To an ethnic base, yeah. you're not good enough. But it's a class basis anyway. It's the same, it's you know, the, the operetta thing. changed, right? It's the same. So I think that's that's part of our our identity as well. 
I don't yeah. think we woke enough on that. I, I think that, you know, I mean, I, we could go on and on and on about this, but, I mean, think about how many social activists, if you take maybe after, like, the 1920s or even during, like, the colonial Gilded Age, you saw Italian immigrants coming as well. I mean, a lot of them did a lot of good for us, right? Yeah. They built schools. They built clinics. Not enough of them did it, right? But they did it with a sense of condescension. So, okay. Paternalism. Paternalism, more, yeah. right. So we we would never – we went from one paternalistic culture, which was yeah. – To another. I think that there's so much we can dig out on platforms like this, and I hope that the audience that's been around a long time has you know joined us in these conversations because they're evolving conversations, and you could take episodes in and of themselves, but really it's an evolving conversation around self-identity and unpacking all of that. And I just have to say, Professor, for – First of all, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having us here. And thank you for your writing because when Pat shared your poem with me, I you know, I knew right away that it it spoke to me just like I mentioned. I mean, I thought of my grandfather and that last Sunday and I think a lot of people out there will have some real relation to your writing and all the work that you've done over this incredible career and I hope we have you back on anytime because you are a joy. Pleasure. And Thank please you. tell us where people can pick up your books if they want to read your poetry. They they're available on Amazon. You know, it, I have different publishers, but you can always get every everything on Amazon. I hate to push Amazon. <laughs> I can uh, imagine. Barnes and Noble, you <laughs> yeah. get it at well, Barnes and Noble as well. We will try and have a link to your yes, work. Absolutely. Go out, like I say this on every episode. You got to go out and you got to buy the books and you got to spend money on the books because not only do you have to support the people write these books and write, you know, works of art with their visual arts, right? Steve Marello with his, his visual yeah. art or, or the professor here with her, her written art. If you if you don't support them, they can't do it. Yeah. But also you're sending a message to places like Barnes & Noble and Amazon that this stuff matters. Yep, you're totally right. I mean, how many times does Italian-American go to a publishing house and they say the Italians don't read? It's the biggest mythology There's a truth to that. So you have to take your confirmation money out because it's dusty. Right, you got in the same rubber band since when? Spend a little of it. Don't buy one book. Buy a couple of books. And, you know, show your waspy in-laws who think that we're nothing more than uh, bada Gavone. bing, gavone, yeah. bada bing, bada boom, an illiterate <laughs> race of, of, of Neanderthals. And they were probably nice people. I hate to say Neanderthals. <laughs> and I say now they were very nice. Whatever, probably. whatever, you know, they think, we think we're gavone people. I go out and buy the books and, and, and give it to that, 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 person that needs to be educated in your life that we also do besides gangsters we also produce poets yep. and painters and painters and 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 you know all kinds of artists yep. of all stripes yeah. for those of you out there in the audience who have heard the standard version of this you know for our show this is a two plus hour conversation and we're going to do something different in the past we've always split these things up into two episodes and i find that as an editor you talk about being a poet right we're creating something here and it's disjointed when you do that, especially in a conversation like this that goes all over the place. So from now on, what we're going to do is we're going to make the longer-form version of these episodes available to our members of the New Neighborhood membership group that we have out there. And if you would like to become a part of the New Neighborhood, it's a very, very reasonable membership, and it is available, if you're interested, at italianamericanpodcast.com slash membership. Hope you'll explore it because there's a lot of these conversations. And like I say, five hours. Is, we've done five hours sometimes. No one's going to listen to us for five hours. You never know. There's, there's somebody track. out there. But if you'd like to. If you if you got to listen to us for five hours, you need help. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to do you, that, 
I actually found an Italian American psychiatrist. Not for me. Calm down. <laughs> no, because a friend of mine is dating an Italian American psychiatrist. Right, that's a great interview. And I told her I'll give you more business than <laughs> I know so many people. Amen. That's yeah, the truth. Well, if you're interested in hearing the the full episode, whatever is wrong with you, and you want to hear the rest, it's available in the new neighborhood, our private Facebook group, TitanAmericanPodcast.com/slash/membership. I guarantee you, this episode in particular is a phenomenal exploration of who we are and a lot of the questions we ask. So we're thrilled to have had it. We hope that it has been as impactful for you as it has for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.